0: All right, let's open up our Bibles to James chapter 5. We're at James chapter 5. If you're visiting, we are going through the book of James. So this is, we're nearing the end of our series next week, Lord willing. We will finish our time in James, and then we will transition back to the Old Testament, and we'll pick up at 2 Samuel. So we are at James chapter 5. And we're at verses 7 through 12. This is God's holy word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers... Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All right, by show of hands, who here enjoys waiting? Raise your hand. Where is everybody's hand? Come on, everybody right who here is naturally—we have one person that likes waiting. So next birthday or holiday, I want to encourage the parents to make him wait before he gets to open any gifts, and we will see how much he enjoys waiting. I think most of us are not naturally a patient person. We have a distaste. We have an aversion towards waiting. We struggle to be patient. I was driving. Uh, I was running a little late to go. I, I helped coach football for junior high, and as I'm driving to school, I turned on around the corner over by the Maumee Bridge, going from Perrysburg to Maumee, and I remembered it's down to one lane. And I was like, oh, and it took forever to go about 100 yards to get past the bridge, and then I was able Uh, to go my way. So it was frustrating. Then the same day on the way home, I'm hungry. It's been a long day. I get to the railroad tracks over by St. Luke's Hospital, near where I live, and they're doing some kind of construction on the highway, and they're coming down uh, where my house is to do stuff uh, with all their equipment. And once again, I waited, and it was just not fun. If the Koroleuskis were here right now, they would testify Mac, the last meal he ate was before his football game, and they kept postponing when the surgery would be. So like 24 hours hit, he hadn't ate, couldn't eat till the surgery. It just kept going longer and longer. And like every time they'd say, it's going to be at 11, it's going to be at 1, it's going to be, it just, and like obviously nobody was happy of the waiting. You see, waiting is uncomfortable, sometimes literally Holding on and being patient while one endures difficult situations is easier said than done, is it not? It's not an easy endeavor, but here's the truth. God has a purpose in the waiting. God has a reason in the patience. There's a work of his grace that can only happen in the crucible of you and I waiting on him. He uses long-suffering and steadfastness to prepare us for the return of his son. So we need to continue to hold steadfast, my friends. So that's what we're going to look at today the worthwhileness of waiting, the worthwhileness of waiting. If you're taking notes, we're going to begin by looking at the patience that's in suffering, that there is to be patience in suffering that you and I need to wait. We need to wait patiently. We need to Uh, be willing to endure hardship and adversity during that time. So let's uh, be patient in suffering. Secondly, we're going to see that there is a promise behind the suffering. And the promise is this. Jesus is coming back, and it's going to be worthwhile. And in the meantime, he's going to give you and I the grace and the mercy to persevere. And then lastly, we're going to see there are prohibitions During the suffering, there are prohibitions during the suffering. Well, let's get started. Let's pick up at verse 7 as we see the patience in the suffering. Now, if you remember last week, we saw the dangers of wealth. And we realized wealth isn't bad. It's what it does to our hearts. It's the way that we kind of get lost in our way. And he warned them about the dangers as he talked about the rich oppressors that were making life miserable upon them. And he was telling them, "Don't, don't envy them. Don't be like them. Uh, Realize judgment is coming for them. So he really focused on the oppressors last week. This week he's going to focus on the oppressed, the afflicted. And he wants them to keep their eye on the prize. First of all, we need to expect a lot of waiting. Read verse 7 with me. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, Until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. You also be patient. So two verses, four times he uses a variation of the word patient. To be patient means to remain tranquil while waiting. It's to bear up under ongoing provocation without complaint. It's to endure over time. That's what it means to be patient. It's devoid of complaining, of of griping, of of frustration and annoyance. It's closely tied to time, to duration. So there's a period where you're enduring something and you're doing it for a longer stretch of time. What's one of the longest waiting times have you ever waited? All right, we're, we're near Cedar Point. What's the longest you've ever waited for a ride at Cedar Point? Without the fast pass, obviously. Anybody, four hours? oh my goodness. Whoa, four hours waiting to ride a ride. I remember one of the longest waits I ever had is I had to uh, reach an office. Uh, it was something related to insurance, and I waited on the phone for like an hour and 50 minutes, put it on speaker phone and just just sat there, and it was my background while I worked for an hour and 50 minutes. I was so confused when I heard a voice. I think they said, like, hello, like, three times before they started to hang up. I was like, I'm here. I was just, I was so confused. I was so drowned out by the waiting. You see, that's the idea of waiting. It's, it's something that is typically not brief. And then notice what he uses for the illustration. Farming. First century culture, Gregarian culture. They were so—if if he wasn't writing to farmers, everybody that he was writing to knew a farmer. So this was very relatable to them. And he uses this example from farming. Look at the farmer. They wait for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. So they would, they would get the field ready, they would plant, and then they would do What? wait they would wait they couldn't do anything about it they couldn't expedite the process they had to wait they had to wait for the early rains would have been late spring early summer and then late summer early fall it would be the late rains and those two major rains those seasons in the life of a farmer would have been what ultimately produced the final harvest the final crop And the only thing they could really do, they could, you know, pick weeds, they could do all that stuff, but at the end of the day, they had to wait. Proverbs 14, 29 says, whoever is slow to anger, whoever is patient, has great understanding, but he who is hasty, temper, exalts folly. So there's this this idea that waiting is esteemed, impatience is frowned upon. To be thought out versus being impulsive. Remember the context rich oppressors making life miserable upon the people he's writing to. And they're getting frustrated, they're getting impatient. And he tells them to do what? Be patient, wait. He's calling out the hearers to hold on and to trust God. You know what waiting ultimately is for you and I? It is an act of acceptance of God's lot in our life. That's what patience is. It's saying, okay, God, I guess you know what's best. Not I guess. It's God, I accept that this is what is, what you're doing in my life, and I'll embrace it as it, even if I don't like it, even if I don't desire these circumstances. Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It is okay that my timetable is not God's timetable. Because his timetable is perfect and good, even if it is uncomfortable for you and I. So expect a lot of waiting. Well, how impatient are you? And I'm not talking about waiting in traffic, waiting on the phone, waiting at Cedar Point. But how impatient are you at God's answer to prayers? How restless do you get when you have to wait on God to act in a situation? How much does your faith and trust waver during seasons of waiting? Could God possibly be using these seasons of waiting to to produce character in you? To work in this, to, to lead to a greater dependence upon him? So there's a lot of waiting, but then there is also expect a load to withstand. Continue on with me. In verse 8, he says, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Then go down to verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You see, it's more than just simply waiting on God. Like, we don't like waiting, but is, is waiting a little bit easier when life is good? Circumstances are great. Bank is full. You're healthy. And it's like, man, I, I don't like waiting, but life's pretty good. I guess I can wait a little longer. It's not, that's not often the situation that we're talking about when he speaks of waiting. It's waiting combined with Difficult circumstances. It's being patient while you're afflicted and suffering and having hardship and having trials. That's where kind of the proverbial the rubber hits the road. That's really what it means to be patient when you're enduring. And that's what he says: expect a load to bear, to to withstand. If we were to stop here right now and we all cram down the hallway that we can't walk through because they did the floor. But if we were able to go up into the weight room, we could go over to the squat rack and you could put weight on each side of the bar and then what we could have somebody do is they could go in the squat rack, put the Olympic bar on their shoulder area and then step away from the rack with the weight on their bar and what are they doing with that weight? They are bearing the weight of it and that's what it means to be steadfast. To bear the weight of the trial and tribulation and to not drop the weight, to not give up, to not fall over, to throw away. That's what it means to establish your heart. When you and I, when we establish our heart, we fix it firmly in place. We have resolved, there's this inward commitment that I will not give up, that I will not lose heart, that I will brace myself for the sake of Christ. Christ. Steadfastness to bear that weight, to persevere. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians. You know, the armor of God. Listen to what he says. Ephesians 6.13 Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, to remain steadfast. That though all these trials and tribulations, although Satan is shooting his arrows at him, regardless, because of the armor of God, because of God's work in and through us, we are able to stand. First Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the expectation, friends. Not for you and I to just be patient when life is great, when all your prayers are answered, relationships are calm, and you've got all the resources you want, and you're getting yeses to everything. No, that's, that's the fair weather fan, That's that's normal people are in a good uh, state of mind in that. But what happens when all of those things are not true? When you're diagnosed with a disease, when you lose your job, when you have a major relational conflict, are you patient? Are you steadfast? Do you withhold, withstand that? Remember the difficult context. These rich oppressors are putting people in jail. They're preventing them from work. They're preventing them from having food. They are making life miserable. And the desire, the temptation would be to what? To overthrow them, to fight them, to slander them. And what does he tell them to do? Remain steadfast. And then notice what he says. He uses the example of who? The prophets. The prophets. In other words, you are not the only one enduring this. In the past, people have endured this. And even in the present, First Peter 5.9 says, resist them, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And think of past generations when we start thinking of the brotherhood who have suffered. The prophets are a great one. I think we could pick several different prophets to use as a case study on it. You could use Isaiah. At one point, Isaiah had to be naked and barefoot to go preach the message. We've got a Hosea who had to marry a prostitute who again and again and again remained unfaithful to him. That would be another one. But probably one of the greatest examples of a suffering prophet was Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 20, verse 2, it says, uh, Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. So besides being beaten, besides being put in the stocks, his message was consistently rejected. He was left to die. His scroll was burned, and he was slandered. It was just, it was a rough go. And in the midst of all of that stuff that he was going through, all of that burden that was upon his shoulder, guess what he did? He remained what? He remained steadfast. He didn't give up. He didn't throw in the towel. He didn't quit. He didn't leave. No, he remained steadfast. And that's what you and I are called to do. It even says that he was blessed. It says, Blessed are those who remain steadfast, that God's favor is resting on them. What load are you bearing today? What's going on in your life? Are are you finding it difficult to remain steadfast? Are you starting to waver? Because if we're really being vulnerable and transparent with one another, we all are susceptible to this. Life is heavy. It's difficult. And there are times. Part of the reason that God has given us the body of Christ is that we can come alongside of each other and shoulder those burdens. So we're not alone when we endure those things. right, so we see the patience in the suffering, a lot of waiting, a load to withstand. Let's now look at the promise behind the suffering. Besides the exhortation, he offers, I think, an incentive to press on. And the incentive is what? Jesus and and the return of Christ. He encourages them with what lies ahead, that the Lord is coming. Read verse 7 with me. He goes on and says, Uh, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until what? The coming of the Lord, you go down to verse 8. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, it says the judge is standing at the door. He's reminding them in the midst of suffering, in the midst of injustices by the rich and by the world that it's going to eventually end the suffering because Jesus is coming back. And that's something that we have to be reminded of because Often I think suffering feels like it is never ending. Can you relate? Can you identify with that? You remember the one advertisement? It was a commercial for Energizer. They had the Energizer Bunny. And what was the tagline? Does anybody remember? Yeah, it keeps going and going and going. Nothing outlasts the Energizer bunny. I think often, if you've you've lived in this life for any length of time, suffering can feel that way, can it not? That it goes on and on and on. And what a comforting word to these oppressed people that James is writing to, that it's going to end. You know why it's going to end? Because he's coming back. Revelation 21, verse 4, it says, He's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I think sometimes you and I, we get so caught up in our circumstances, in life that we're living in right now, that we forget that this is temporary and eternity is awaiting we forget that though we're suffering now, there's going to be a day, there's going to be an age when Jesus comes, he's going to wipe away the tears and there will be no more suffering. We need to anticipate that. We need to long for it. I remember when Jim Elliot, he was writing his sister and it was for her birthday and the one thing he said, just was so profound to me, he says, live your life as though your very next step would take you across the threshold of heaven. And just that Heavenly, eternal mindset that you and I need to keep at the forefront. We need to long for it. Revelation twenty two twenty It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Would well, you long for Jesus' return like that? I've talked to enough people. I think here's what I think we all would like to see. This is honesty across the board, and this is not a good honesty. I think most of us would like to live to 80s or 90s, get to watch all your kids, have kids, your grandkids. And at that point, like, okay, I've done everything. I've seen everything I wanted to experience. Now I'm ready for heaven. But then you got Paul, and he says what? For me to live as Christ?" And to die is gain. I think it's one of the funniest things that Paul says, and I don't think he intended it to be funny, but he's like, I would rather be with Christ, but because of you all, I'm here. I mean, it's okay. It's not that bad. I'm going to, I'll keep serving, but like, you know, it would be a lot better is if I wasn't here with you and I was with Jesus. And, and that needs to be uh, something I think that we fan into flame in our hearts and minds more to foster a, a, an anticipation of glory of, of the return of Jesus. I think we've gotten too comfortable in our country, in our world, and in our lives that we, we, we've grown too attached to your life. And we don't long for the return of Christ. And notice how he speaks of it. He says that it's coming, that it's eminent it's and soon. Now, people have taken James' words and says James didn't know what he was talking about. Because he's saying that the Lord is at hand, that that it's near, and then guess what? It has not happened. So, hey, you kind of missed that one, Nostradamus. 2,000 years, it's not here yet. But here's the deal when we talk about the imminent return of Jesus, it means from the time of the first to the second coming, and it can happen when God designs it to be. Like, whenever in God's sovereign will, it's going to happen. So, he could come today. You might not have to try to maneuver through the parking lot to try to find your car. We might leave the gym and go to glory. It could happen, or it might be generations from now. But when you start thinking of two thousand years, even three thousand years, and eternity, it's that small. So it is near. There's an eminent nature to it. And he kind of the big picture with the return of the Lord is that vindication was going to take place. That's what he's. He's getting at. The suffering's going to end, and those people that have been oppressing you and, and making your life miserable, guess what? That day is judgment then. It even says right here that the judge is at hand, that he's going to be there to judge. Psalm 37, 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. As the wicked will be judged, the wrongs will be made right. Why well, are you one, longing for the return, anticipating a return? and are you growing weary? Are you losing heart? Do you feel like the wicked are prospering? It might appear that way, but friends, this is temporary. He's going to judge. So we saw not only that the Lord is coming, but let's look at the Lord's compassion. And he gives the example of Job. It says, "You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Um, if, if you don't, we'll, we're going to talk in a little bit and unpack a little bit the story of Job if you're unfamiliar. But what we see in Job is he stands firm in God's testing grounds. He stands firm. Because we, we live at a time, and I think it's always been that time, probably, but people like to quit things, do they not? people quit jobs real easy people quit school easy people quit marriages easy it's just if the going gets tough what happens people get going like all right but that wasn't job so in job chapter 1 verse 8 it says the lord says to satan so satan is kind of roaming the earth and he's looking for somebody to test to wreak havoc upon And the Lord says to him, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth. He's blameless. He's an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan's like, yeah, that's true. But he does that because you've made his life awesome. Like who wouldn't be happy and go lucky because he's got this sweet life. The moment you mess up with his life, he's not going to be so So supportive of you, so devoted of you, so loving of you. And God said, Okay, you can take anything, but you need to leave his life alone. And sure enough, same day, his property is taken, destroyed, and all of his children die. So imagine all of that in one day. Now you would expect him to do what? To curse God. But we read in Job chapter 121, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So then he's like, yeah, but if you let me touch his health, he's like, well, you can't kill him, but I'll let you touch his health. He's going to do it. So he he gets all these sores. It's miserable. His wife says, curse God and die. And Job 2.10 says, shall we receive good from evil and not, uh, good from God and not receive evil and all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So then his friends come along, and they all try their various ways to kind of explain the situation. Uh, They do a terrible job at it, very unbiblical, and yet he continues to remain faithful. And then finally near the end, he gets to a point where he's just losing losing faith. He's getting frustrated. He begins to complain. He begins to kind of question the birth of his life, curse the day of his birth, and then God comes along and says, hey— uh, who are you? Where where were you when I did this? Where were you? And Job, you know, silently sits there and takes it. And then after he takes it, he says, uh, Job 40, verse 5, I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no forward, no further. And then God ends up again rebuking him. And then by chapter 41, he repents. And then chapter 42, it says this, And the Lord, verse uh, 12 The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. So he got this, he got, he had ended up having more kids again. He ended having uh, more prosperity in the midst of all that. And what we see in all of this, that God used it as a means by which he extended grace and mercy to Job to persevere. Paul can testify the same thing. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.8, it says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raised the dead. So Job could identify with that. He, life was so miserable. He got so dependent. And God gave him what? Compassion and mercy and, and Grace. You see, that, friends, is one of the greatest blessings of you and I enduring. That's one of the great honors and privileges it is for us as followers of Christ to persevere and to press on through suffering is because God gives us grace and mercy during it. 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about God, uh, that it was strength and weakness. My grace is sufficient. Because here's the truth, and this is what we need to wrap our minds around right here. If there was a circumstance, Charles Spurgeon speaks of this, if there was a circumstance that was better for you right now, God would have you in that circumstance. So translation, what circumstance you are in right now is the one best for you because our God loves you, he knows you, he knows what is best for you. So we need to stop looking at our circumstances based on how comfortable they are, how how uh, desirable they are, and start looking at it like God. What are you What are you teaching me through this? What are you doing in this? How are you using this for my good, for your glory? How are you maturing and producing godly character? How are you conforming me more and more into the image of Christ? Can you testify to God's compassion and mercy in your suffering? Can you look back at times where you made it through the end and it was so obvious that God alone, that Jesus is the reason that you made it through? I could, I could talk here till I'm blue in my face as I look at various times in my life that have been difficult times, tough situations. And God was faithful. Watching my, my family endure the loss of my brother-in-law. Like that's something that, that leaves scars and it still stinks and it's, it's still... A source of pain, but man, God was faithful during that. And he carried our families through it. And he will do the same for you. So we see patience in the suffering, a lot of waiting, a load to withstand. We see promise behind the suffering. The Lord's coming, and the Lord is giving us compassion. But then he warns them what not to do during the suffering. First of all, don't speak against. He goes down to verse 9. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Why the word on one speech with one another in light of the context of waiting, of being patient? All right. After church today, you go somewhere, you're out in the sun for the next five or six hours, and you don't put any sunscreen on, and you wake up tomorrow with a pretty good sunburn. What do you not want anybody to do because you have a sunburn? Don't what? Don't touch me. Don't touch, every person that comes up and touches you, you're like, ah. Maybe if you had an injury and like somebody touches the injury, you're like, oh my goodness. I remember my kids, when I dislocated my shoulder, wanted to hug me. And like, it was the most painful hugs I've ever had in my life. Like I'm crying and like, it's not tears of joy. It's like, oh my goodness, you're killing me. What if you have a headache? Horrible headache. Two things you really don't like. You don't like light. And you don't like noise. There's been times we're driving to school and one of the kids have a headache and they're like, shut the radio off. Stop talking. Let's just be silent the whole ride. Think of this. They are being so afflicted by the rich. And the oppressed Work, food, everything Life is miserable So they're kind of at their wits end And what happens when you and I are at our wits end With other people We get a little little impatient, A little annoyed A little aggravated I think often road rage is not Because somebody got really mad in the moment There was something so Boiled up inside And then that person cutting you off was like That's it and that's what he's warning them of. Don't grumble against. What, when we think of grumbling, where do we think in the Old Testament? The Israelites in the wilderness. They were not happy with the fact that they were wandering. And who did they grumble against? They grumbled against God, and they grumbled against Moses and the other leaders. And he's warning them, don't do that. Don't tear down. He, he has consistently talked to them about the dangers of their tongue. James 3, 9 says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brother, this should not be the case. In other words, what he's telling them to do at this moment is you need to put the mute button on. Don't speak against others. Don't be slow to speak. It's not just a warning of doing that. He tells them you're going to be judged, so take this serious. This is just not an exhortation that I want you to not do it. You're going to be judged if you do it. Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Remember, judgment is near. The judgment is hand. Jesus is coming. Be careful. Are you short-tempered in times of stress and suffering? Are you mindful and weary of such such judgment? I think we're pretty terrible at this, aren't we? For being... Real with one another. When life is frustrating, everybody is annoying, right? Let's really be real with one another. We're thinking if people would just do things like, say it, like me. I mean, I think that all the time as a pastor, i like, if people would be like me, it'd be way easier to pastor. So... <laughs> That sometimes is in my head when I'm looking out at you all and you're sharing your problems and you're saying, like, if you would just do things like me, it would be a whole lot easier. And then, like, Abby would be like, that is not true. If you do things not like Joe, you're probably going to be in a better situation. So, But not only to not speak against, don't swear at all. He says, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be a no that you not Fall under condemnation. Once again, this one seems like it might be like an add on thought. Is this a new thought? But I think it's similar with regards to not grumbling. It's in both instances, it's the idea of not acting rashly, of not uh, going out of your way due to stress and just being inappropriate to, to not be thinking clearly, not be honoring of the Lord. It's one of those ones where, like, they're they're making these vows that they don't need to make. Now we do it younger when we're uh, committing to something. Maybe even on the playground, one of the things we do. What do we do? What's it called? A pinky promise. Or, or I remember as kids, sometimes people would be like, oh, you're not telling the truth. I am too. I swear. And then they'll, like, it gets pretty intense, like escalation really fast. I swear on your mothers are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we don't need to be swearing on people's graves. If you say it's true, it's true. And like, but we do that. Even in the courtroom, what do they have you do? Like, I mean, Now, it's, it seems even weird in our culture because, I mean, the vast majority of people aren't obeying the word. Aren't followers of Christ, and what do we have them do? They they swear on a Bible, and it's that idea that he's saying this is not necessary. Don't act rashly. Don't make. Don't write checks you can't cash. Remember Peter, Jesus is talking near the end. Jesus is talking with them, and they said you know, you guys are going to abandon me. And Jesus is talking to Peter, and Peter says, even if all of them fall away on account of you, I never will. I never will. And Jesus is like, yeah, uh, by the, the time that the crow, yeah, the rooster crows, like, how many times? And like, what? No, it's like, there's, I will never do this. He's like, yeah, we'll see. And then it just took, like, a little servant girl saying, are you him? Like, I don't even know who this Jesus is. Like, deny, deny, deny. Like making those vows. Judges 11, is another great example, Jephthah. He makes this like rash vow. He's like, whatever comes out of that door next or the gate next, I will sacrifice to the Lord. He was assuming it was going to be an animal, and all of a sudden his daughter comes out. It's making, making those rash vows. Vows. We don't need to. What we need to do and what he's saying here is you and I need to be men and women and children of our word. In the midst of everything, all the affliction and the stress and and everything like that, you and I make our yes a yes and a no-no. So if you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you say you're not going to do something, you don't do it. If for some reason something changes and you're not able to make good, you let that individual know. Unfortunately, what we often see amongst Christians is we have some of the least amount of character and integrity around. It's one of the reasons that people are so questioning of Christians, because we lack, we make promises that we don't intend to keep. And he's saying that should not be the case. Matthew, I, I think Jesus, he's heard this from his son, or not from his son, Jesus, uh, James heard this from his brother. Because Matthew 11, 5.33 It says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord whatever you have sworn. But I say you do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or uh, it is at the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Are you a person of your word? Are you a person of integrity and character? Follow through on your promises. We sometimes speak of keeping our eye on the prize. Have you ever used that language? It's to remain focused on a particular goal when the path to that goal is long and tedious. You see it in the sports world all the time. Whatever the championship may be, however long the season is, you got to want to keep the eye on the prize. So in the midst of the practices and in the injuries and all of that stuff, keep your eye on the prize. Olympians waiting four years until they end up getting another crack at that medal. They have to keep the eye on the prize. I know I joked a little because Brooke's uh, baby, Brooke and Dallas' baby went a little bit longer for delivery. And like I kept, I was bugging her daily. Like, baby, she's like, No. Next day, like baby's like no. The point she's like, I'm not even sure if I have a baby. And then it finally came, and I just kept saying, It's going to be worth it. Like you're not even going to be thinking twice that it, it, you were having the baby, you were pregnant as long as you were. Once the baby came, keep the eye on the prize. It means to keep on plugging through the monotony and rigors of life because it's going to be worth it. Persevere. Even though it gets uncomfortable, even though it gets painful, it will be worth it. And what James has told us and taught us today is that suffering in this world will be worth it in the end. It might not seem like it now in the moment, but it's going to be worth it. So keep on holding on, keep on being patient, endure the difficulties, because God has a purpose in it. He's at work. He's preparing you for his son. Like I said in the beginning, there is a crucible of us in suffering that prepares us in a way that no other circumstance could prepare us. So whatever you're going through right now, and I I know of several trials and tribulations amongst you guys, and they're very wide ranging from health to relationships To financial, to the list goes on and on. Friends, God is at work. Tell yourself that. Remind yourself of that. He's at work, He's doing a work, He is making a way, and He is giving you grace and mercy to persevere, and it's going to be worth it. So be patient and wait on the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now, and we acknowledge uh, that we are impatient, uh, that we love your will, but we love it our way. God, we uh, would like for you at times to hit the fast-forward button or skip a few scenes and get us to the end of the suffering, but it's not just simply uh, the destination that is important, but also the, the journey, the ride that you are at work, that you're conforming us more and more into the image of your Son. And that is better suited, better done as we go through trials and tribulations. And that's why James could even start his book by saying, consider it pure joy when we face trials. So God, we ask right now that you would help us to be a people who consider it pure joy. That we would remain steadfast, that we would persevere. Because one day soon, your son is going to return. And he's going to make all things right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?